1: WBBM, Chicago. World News Today, brought to you by the Admiral Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio, America's smart set. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas stations, as well as leading news centers of our own country, CBS correspondents are waiting to bring you a complete report from the world's political and battlefronts. But first, here's Doug Edwards.
2: The Allied 5th Army in Italy has taken two German hilltop strongholds, dominating a fortified village near Cassino, while 8th Army troops are fighting fiercely in the streets of Ortona. On the Russian front, Soviet forces have taken the initiative on every sector of the long line, except southwest of Zolobin in White Russia. The Yugoslav partisans have cut the important Zagreb to Belgrade Railway at several points, and in the Pacific, American heavy and medium bombers have made four more attacks on the Jap base at Cape Gloucester, New Britain Island. Now, Admiral Radio takes you direct to Algiers, Winston Burdett reporting. In the mountainous central sector of the 5th Army Front in Italy, American doughboys celebrated Christmas by pushing doggedly ahead in pouring rain under wicked fire from enemy machine guns and knocking the Germans off another peak in the outskirts of San Gatorre. It was a bitter fight for a key objective. The hill the Americans captured is 1,400 feet high, at the western end of the Samucro chain. It directly dominates the village, which is the enemy's next stronghold on the road to Cassino, seven miles further up the valley. That is the only gain reported for Christmas Day along the entire front in Italy. Elsewhere, the Germans have fought us to a standstill. The approaches to San Vitale, which the Americans are now preparing to tackle, are stiff with mines and pillboxes, machine gun posts, and mortar batteries. This will be another grim job for the infantry. It promises to be the Battle of San Pietro all over again. The greatest immediate threat to the Germans' winter line is in the east on the Adriatic coast. To answer that threat, they have concentrated three divisions against the Canadians in and around Ortona. In the furious battle for that port town, the anchor of Marshal Kesselring's left flank, where the Germans are still holding out, both sides are relying heavily on armor. The Canadians have blasted all but a handful of Germans out of Ortona... ...after five days of the deadliest tank and infantry fighting of the Italian campaign. But that handful are still clinging to the northwest section of the town. The Germans have blown up all of Ortona's landing keys... ...just to make sure that the port will be of no immediate use to us once we get it. Here at headquarters, the main topic of speculation this weekend... ...has been the new Allied Command appointments for the invasion of Europe. Those appointments are in themselves a significant comment... ...on the way the war has developed in the Mediterranean theater. General Eisenhower will leave his command here... ...to head the massive Allied offensive now in the making against Germany. Lieutenant General Karl Spatz... ...until now commanding the Northwest African Air Force... ...will also leave this theater... ...to head the entire American strategic bombing of Germany. General Montgomery will become commander-in-chief of British invasion armies in the United Kingdom. Of the top men in the Mediterranean theater, General Sir Harold Alexander is presently slated to remain as commander of the Allied armies in Italy. So the questions which people are asking here are, what next in the Mediterranean? Will further Allied offensives be launched from the south? Will Italy be the springboard for something else? Or will Italy serve mainly as an airbase to swell our bombing offensive against Germany? This is Winston Burdett at Allied Force Headquarters in North Africa, returning you now to CBS in New York. More news in just a moment, but first here is Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio.
1: Next Friday will mark the third time our country has paused at midnight to look forward to a new year as a nation at war. Two years ago, we were a stunned nation, shocked at the treachery of a cowardly attack. Last year, a nation engrossed in seemingly insurmountable difficulties in the process of preparedness. This year, an entirely new picture is presented. Production problems have been solved. War industries, like the two great admiral plants, are turning out the materials of warfare in ever-increasing amounts. Our armed forces, steeled in the fire of experience are sending our enemies reeling back in the prologue of mightier blows to come. All these things we will see as we welcome the new year this week. A welcome, while it may lack the carefree gaiety of pre-war years, will be marked with the satisfaction of a job well begun. A hope of a not-too-distant victory. The Admiral Corporation and every Admiral worker join in the silent resolve that the work so well begun shall continue until our enemies are blasted into complete defeat. But to you on the home front, Admiral has this assurance. Though completely engaged in war production now, Admiral, in peacetime, the world's largest manufacturer of radio phonograph combinations with automatic record changers, is today planning the conversion to civilian duties to the building of the new Admiral, America's Smart Set. Now, here once again
2: is Doug Edwards. For home front news, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Washington. Don Pryor reporting. It looks like a toss-up today as to whether the railroad strike controversy will be settled or whether the government will take over the carriers. Right now, the argument is hanging on dead center. Two of the operating brotherhoods have called off their strike and are willing to submit to President Roosevelt's arbitration. The others, three, have refused and are still threatening to strike at 6 a.m. Thursday. Leaders of the 15 non-operating unions are expected to meet at the White House tomorrow with management representatives, but nobody really counts on an agreement. The president will return from Hyde Park tomorrow, and if the strike threat still exists by Wednesday, the government probably will be operating the railroads Thursday morning. As for the steel strike, there's still no new information about it here, but plenty of worry. 40,000 men are already off the job, and the number is expected to jump to 350,000 in the next day or so. The unions blame the War Labor Board, which refused to guarantee that any agreement would be retroactive. Union leaders claim that no strike call has been issued. But so far, the strike is following pretty much the same pattern as the coal strikes, which one increases for the miners. I return you to Admiral Radio in New York. There's been no word from Moscow in recent hours on the latest developments on the Russian battlefronts, but Berlin says the Red Army has extended its gains in the Zhitomir area of the Kiev bulge. The Russians are said to be using superior forces in this drive, which the Germans say has already penetrated some of their positions. Moscow thus far has said nothing about the fighting in the Kiev bulge. The Russians continue to stress the gains they're making in White Russia, gains which resulted in the recapture of another 200 populated places and put Soviet forces within 15 miles of the enemy stronghold at Vitebsk. The Russians have also cut the important Vitebsk-Polotsk supply highway. And now for a summary of recent developments in the South Pacific, here is Colombia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. The continuing Allied
3: air attacks on the Japanese air base at Cape Gloucester are certainly suggestive of a possible landing in that area. The Japanese appear to be unable to operate their air power from this base due to these continuous attacks. The objective of our last raid appears indeed to have been shifted to the surrounding villages where Japanese troops may have taken refuge. The Japanese and German radios are reported as hinting that a landing has already taken place. However this may be, it's clear that in the strategical sense, the same pattern is being followed in New Britain but has already been successful on Bougainville, where the establishment of an American air base at Empress Augusta Bay has been followed by the neutralization of the Japanese air facilities at all other points on Bougainville Island. The landing of Empress Augusta Bay was made under cover of long-range and carrier-based aircraft. Once made, it established a base from which all types of land-based aircraft could be
2: brought to bear against other Japanese installations on the island. That was Columbia's military analyst, Major George Fielding Elliott. Here in our New York studio today is Russell Hill, correspondent for the New York Herald Tribune, who has just returned from the Mediterranean Theater of Operations, where he's been covering the war for the last three years. Mr. Hill, a lot of us here at home are interested in knowing something about the Allied generals who are conducting our offensives you've spent some time at the headquarters of General Montgomery, the British commander of the Eighth Army, who's just been chosen to play a leading role under our own General Eisenhower in the Second Front invasion. We'd like to know what kind of a general and what kind of a man Montgomery really is.
4: There is a very revealing remark about General Montgomery which is attributed to Mr. Winston Churchill. The story goes that the Prime Minister, when asked his opinion about the Eighth Army commander, considered for a moment... And then replied, Montgomery, in defeat, unthinkable. In victory, insufferable. Certainly it is true that Monty is not conspicuous for the courteous and modest manners that make General Alexander, for instance, such a pleasant person to know. Montgomery thinks he's good and doesn't mind saying so. When he thinks somebody else isn't good, he also says so. And this frankness has made him a good number of enemies. Yet his very faults have helped to make Monty a successful general. He is ruthless enough to cut red tape, to get rid of inefficient subordinates, to get the supplies he needs. In a recent attack in Italy, his army suffered very heavy casualties, particularly in junior officers. Headquarters was slow in complying with his request for reinforcements. Impatiently, he wired, If I don't get the officers I have asked for within 48 hours, I will stop the battle. He got his officers.
2: What do you think of Montgomery
4: as a strategist? My impression of Montgomery is that he is not a military genius or a miracle man, but he will always be a successful general. He does not carry out daring and brilliant operations which might entail some risk, but he is careful and methodical and leaves as little as possible to chance. He knows how to inspire his men with confidence and enthusiasm, and he has had plenty of experience in handling the various weapons of modern war, in coordinating all arms of the service, and in cooperating smoothly and closely with the Air Forces. When General Montgomery leads his new army into action in Western Europe, we can be sure that he will not let us down. He will lay his plans carefully and will not undertake anything that does not have a good chance of success. He has never yet suffered a major setback, and there is every reason to hope that he is not going to. It is important to be able to count on that. Thanks, Russell Hill of the New York Herald Tribune, for
2: that picture of a great general. London newspapers this morning are practically unanimous in acclaiming the appointment of General Eisenhower to lead the invasion of Germany. The Express praises the general for welding the fighting men of our two races into one whole, happy, and formidable instrument of battle. The dispatch says Eisenhower won very high praise everywhere for the brilliant way he handled the first command fusing joint British and American land, sea, and air forces. The observer says Eisenhower has a grand knack of finding talents and mixing them. And the Times adds he has the gift of getting the best out of subordinates because he's big enough to leave them, do the job he has given them in their own way. London newspapers are also speculating on the possible formation in Britain of a new tactical air force to act directly with the invading armies. The appointment of General Spots to command American strategic bombing forces is seen as an indication that there is to be no let-up in the full-scale deep penetrations of enemy-held lands. And the Sunday news says it is to be presumed that what might be described as an Allied air expeditionary force will contain every type of plane needed to support the opening and maintenance of a second front. Reports from London this morning say that the premier of the Polish government in exile is on his way to Washington to meet with President Roosevelt. And these reports, which are said to come from reliable sources, say the president may be asked to mediate the entire Russian-Polish problem. The two governments, you know, broke relations in April... ...after the Kremlin charged that the Polish government has asked for an investigation of Nazi reports... ...that the Russians had executed 10,000 Poles near Smolensk. The Polish Premier is said to have left London after he heard Foreign Minister Eden's accounts of the Tehran Conference... ...together with Russia's conditions for restoring diplomatic relations. Only last Friday, President Roosevelt predicted that as a result of the Tehran Conference... ...no insoluble differences would arise between Britain, the United States, and the Soviet Union. And now for news from South America, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Rio de Janeiro. John Adams reporting. The American ambassador to Brazil, Jefferson Capri,
5: left Rio early today for consultations in Washington. His last trip to headquarters was in August 1942, the month Brazil declared war against Germany and Italy. Since that date, however, Ambassador Caffrey has conferred with both President Roosevelt and Cordell Hall within the borders of Brazil. Most important local news of Christmas week was the visit of President Getulio Vargas to Sao Paulo, the great industrial center, 300 miles south of Rio. The President conferred with business and industrial leaders on the problems of war production and post-war industrial planning. In Rio, the President's wife, Donna Darcy Vargas, held her annual party for the poor children of the city. They lined up for nearly 10 blocks outside the presidential palace in a pouring rain to receive their Christmas packages. In Copacabana Beach, the Smart's residential district, food prices were the highest in years. Turkey was 70 cents a pound. Scotch whiskey, however, was still available at $4 a bottle. Most members of the American colony opened their homes to entertain lonely American soldiers, sailors, and flyers who happened to be in port. They all seemed to have one idea about the war to do the job they are told to do and get it done quickly, so they can get back home again, back to Hartford or Toledo or San Diego. They liked the appointment of Eisenhower as Allied invasion chief, and when they talked of Roosevelt's warning of big sacrifices ahead, they said, he's talking about us and our buddies, and not the ones who are squawking and striking at home. One boy got awfully dreamy-eyed as he talked about his Sally, who is expecting a baby next month. He had asked his commanding officer if there was any chance of getting home for the big event. And the skipper said, Buddy, you are there for the keel lane, but the war has got to go on. We can't spare you for the launching. This is John Adams in Rio, returning you to CBS and Admiral Radio in New York.
2: Allied airmen continue to hammer Jap positions in the Central and South Pacific. For a report on these developments, Admiral Radio takes you after a brief pause to CBS Honolulu, Webley Edwards reporting. The Marshall Islands, most immediate obstacle in the path of the Pacific Fleet's Road to Tokyo, are the most bombed bits of land in the world today. Twenty-one times in the last eight days, Army and Navy planes have made the Marshalls their target, adding to the punishment dealt to these islands since mid-November. Within the last week, two and often three times a day, our planes have been over the Marshalls, dealing death and destruction to ship and shore installations there. Further to unknown names, such as Kwajalein, Jalawi, Wotye, and Millie, have become commonplace names in the communiques and news releases from Central Pacific headquarters. On the maps of the 7th AAF and of Fleet Air Wing 2, these clusters of coral atolls are hot spots marked for constant attention by heavy and medium bombers and fighter groups. In land area, the marshals are not important, but as airstrips and anchorages flanking or obstructing the sea lanes to Japan, they are extremely important. And that is why these islands, in total area about the size of Rhode Island, are receiving the lethal attention of our Central Pacific air strength with such regularity. They are the forward group of stationary carriers the Japs have built up during the last 25 years as bastions for their hoped-for conquest of the Pacific and the world. Of all Jap-held bases, They are closest to our defense frontier here in the Hawaiian Islands. It has taken us a couple of years to establish our own bases near enough to them to give them a daily plastering. In the early days, our strikes were by fast-moving carrier planes. Then we started moving toward them through our occupation of the Ellis Islands. And then more recently, through our occupation of the nearby Gilberts. The Marines at Tarawa gave us a most important airstrip there from which our fighter and medium bomber planes could augment the attacks of the longer-flying heavy bombers from more distant islands.
5: In the middle of the day's news, bombings on Berlin and other
2: key German cities, predictions of an offensive against the European continent, and tremendous gains in Russia, the Marshall Islands may appear as tiny bits of land in a vast Pacific, far from the ultimate objective of our Pacific forces, which is Honshu Island in Japan. But mark this... They are 2,000 miles nearer to Japan from Hawaii. And that would be pretty good ground gaining in anybody's league. This is Wesley Edwards at Pearl Harbor. Returning you to Admiral Radio in New York. Marshal Tito, the leader of the Yugoslav Partisans, today reports that his troops have cut the important Zagreb to Belgrade Railway in Croatia at several points. And in central Bosnia, heavy fighting is said to be continuing with additional huge losses inflicted on the enemy. The partisan communique also tells of new fighting against General Mihailović's Chechnitz in several parts of Serbia. From Cairo comes the suggestion that if and when the Allies open an offensive in the Balkans, General Sir Harold Alexander will be the top man. Back in this country is the Coast Guard combat artist who has been a witness to all three of our invasions in the Mediterranean area. For his story, Admiral Radio takes you to CBS Washington, Don Pryor reporting. This war has had a tremendous impact on all kinds of people. How each one takes it is the measure of himself. How all of us take it is the measure of America's great strength. Here is a young Midwestern artist, John Stephen Gretzer, 23 years old. Ten months as an artist for the Omaha World Herald, art study under Thomas Hart Benton, then night school and a job at the William Rock Hill Nelson Art Gallery in Kansas City. And what then, John?
6: Then things were changed. I joined the Coast Guard, went to Manhattan Beach, New York for training, and was assigned to sea duty one month later. Just like that? And I've been at sea on the same ship almost continuously ever since. Right out of the solid Middle West. And why did you pick the Coast Guard, John? Mostly, I guess, just because I'd never seen the sea and wanted to. Do you like it? Frankly, I didn't like it at first during that month of training. It was pretty rough for an artist anyway. But I liked the sea immediately. And after a while, I got so liked almost all of it. Especially after we'd been through a couple of invasions. Which invasions? We were in all three of them. North Africa, Sicily, and Italy. I was on a Coast Guard transport, the Samuel B. Chase. Well, you sound sort of proud of that ship. I am. She's known as the Lucky Chase. But her end, she was only one of a group of four transports that wasn't sunk by bombing. She was attacked morning, night, and sometimes oftener for days on end. She stood off jealous Sicily, unloading troops and taking on wounded for several days. With bombers overhead all the time. At Salerno, she did the same thing, only there it was twice as tough. On the way back from there, sailing through a channel in the minefields, she went through the worst night bombing attack I've ever seen. At least an hour and a half, with the air full of tracer shells and bombs exploding all around. But in all that time, 18 months, she was never damaged once. She never lost a single man, and nobody in the crew was even wounded. Lucky Chase is right. John, where did you spend last Christmas? At Gibraltar. We laid up there for a couple of weeks. Homesick? ICS. Yes. I had just been married one year before, on December 26th. It had been a long time. The boys had a Christmas celebration on board with Turkey and all the rest. But we hadn't received any mail for several months. Not even a letter, much less Christmas packages. On top of that, I drew a gun Christmas Eve and had to miss the celebration. But this Christmas was different. Yes, this was different. Mrs. Gretzler is right here in the studio. She arrived in Washington just three days ago.
2: And she and John spent Christmas together. The first time, incidentally, they've been seeing each other for ten months. John is now a combat artist, and he'll stay here for a while, putting his experiences onto paper and canvas, and then out to sea again. But incidentally, don't let that word, artist, fool you. John is an artist, all right, and a good one. But combat artists in the Coast Guard are fighting men first, last, and always. They do their drawing when they can. I return you to Admiral Radio in New York. And once again, here is Warren Sweeney with a word from Admiral Radio. With the Admiral Corporation and other
1: radio manufacturers devoted entirely to wartime production, the radio you now have has become practically irreplaceable. But no matter how careful you may be, breakdowns are bound to occur at some time or other. If your set fails to operate perfectly, however, there are some things you can do before calling on your busy Admiral dealer. Certain checks you can make to determine if there is actually a structural failure. For example... Are you sure the plug is firmly inserted in the light socket or that the wire on the plug is not loose? Servicemen can tell of many calls made for something no more serious than that. As a wartime service to you in helping to keep your set in operation and to help save the time of your busy Admiral dealer, Admiral has prepared a home checkup chart giving some 20 suggestions of things you can do before calling your serviceman. To obtain one of these charts, just ask for it at your Admiral Dealer's or address a letter or card to this station. The simple directions you will find on this chart may be the means of keeping your set in operation and may save you the expense of a service call. Ask your Admiral Dealer for a home checkup chart or send your name and address now to the station to which you are listening. Careless talk can cost lives. Words can sink ships, lose weapons, mean the failure of military ventures. Remember these rules in even the most carefully guarded conversation. If you hear it from someone else, don't pass it on. If you see it yourself, tell no one. Don't talk unless you read it in the newspapers or hear it on the air. These are things our enemies would like to know about our men, planes, ships, and supplies. Where, how, when, how many, what kind? Let's make them find out the hard way on the battlefields of the world. The appearance of Navy personnel on this program does not constitute an endorsement of our product for the Navy Department. World News Today is brought to you each Sunday at this hour by the Admiral Corporation, makers of Admiral Radio America's smart set. Be sure to listen again next Sunday when Admiral brings you World News Today by shortwave direct from leading news centers of the world. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. The WBBM Air Theater Wrigley Building, Chicago 11.
0: Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies.